evening everyone. Uh, I'd like to, to tell you a story. It's a, a familiar story, but it's probably a slightly different version of it than you've heard before. And you'll recognize it very quickly. A man has two sons. And the youngest gets it into his head that he's had enough. And so he goes to his dad and he virtually wishes him dead. Because he asks for his share of the family inheritance up front and with immediate effect. And the dad does the maths and he hands over an appropriate or some would say an inappropriate amount of money. And the son packs up and out and off he goes to foreign claims where he spends night after night filling the glasses of the designer set with liquid assets. Days blend into one another as he takes the advice to eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you may die to a whole new level. Problem is, he can't sustain his hedonistic lifestyle and so the money doesn't last nor do his so-called friends whenever they discover that he can no longer pick up the tab at the end of the evening. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And so he logs on to worstjobspossible.com and he scrolls through and he ends up taking a post cleaning out pigsties, which is not such a great career move from a kid from a Jewish family. A few days in, he's there with a shovel in his hand and he's digging when suddenly reality dawns. What am I doing here? Even the worst job back in my dad's setup is incredible compared to this. I'm going to hitchhike home, and as I do, I'm going to prepare a speech. And so he decides, as he journeys along, to say something along the lines like this. Dad, I've really messed up, but I want to come home. You don't have to think of me as family anymore. I would perfectly understand that. But please, just give me a job any job and after a long hot journey and a lot of thinking time he turns the corner into his old street and his dad sees him and his dad begins running to him and that was totally unexpected because that's extraordinary behavior not only does he run towards him but he embraces him and he kisses him and the son starts his well rehearsed speech but in a sense the dad seems to cut in and instructs his PA to arrange the biggest street party ever seen He says, my son was lost, but now he's back. Let the party begin. And the son can't believe what's happening. But the story doesn't end there because the older brother has just arrived home from work. And he turns the same corner and he thinks he's in a scene from an old musical. There's dancing, there's music, there's tables right up the middle of the street and everybody's having a fantastic time. And he calls one of the waiters over and he asks, what's going on? And the employee answers, your brother's back and your dad's blowing the whole entertainment budget on this party. And the older brother loses it and he storms off furiously. And the dad catches up with him and the son spills it out. I've slogged my guts out. I've slaved over the accounts. I've done exactly what you told me to do. And did you ever once throw a party for me and my mates? No, never. But when this waster comes crawling back home, he gets the full treatment. So thanks, dad, for nothing. And son, the dad says, grabbing him by the shoulders. You're around all the time. And I love that. And whatever is mine is yours. But how could I not throw a party? Because as far as I was concerned, your brother was dead. But I've just discovered he's alive. He could have been anywhere. But now he's here with us. Come and join 
the party. And so the story ends. Now obviously we all do recognize that as a slightly alternative version of the parable of the prodigal son. Or should it be the parable of the lost son? Or should it be the parable of the lost sons? Or is it the parable of the loving father? It's been called different things. And on Sunday evenings during the summer we're going to look at some of the parables. And it's estimated that Jesus told approximately 60 of these. But we're going to just look at some of them during July, August and into the first week of September. But before we actually turn to this one, which is the longest parable recorded in the Gospels, and it's also described as the pearl or the crown of all the parables. It's the one we probably know the most or we're most familiar with. But before we do that, let me introduce you or reintroduce you to this whole idea of parable. Now, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, and I know most of you have, as we've journeyed through Mark's Gospel... Uh, we came across this issue. And what we said was that parables are essentially stories. They're graphic stories. They're attention-grabbing stories. And they are used to convey really important truths. They are like many dramas using picture language, which, as I've shared before, is my favorite definition of parable. And Jesus used these time and time again. In fact, Over one-third of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain parables as told by Jesus. And I think the reason that Jesus loved to tell these these stories is because Jesus knew that people love stories. People always have loved stories. People continue to love stories. Because good stories, interesting stories, intriguing stories, they draw you in. They capture your attention. They connect with you at a very deep level. We all love them. And if there is a good storyteller telling the story, then you will hang on to their every word. And one of the key purposes of these stories was to help human minds grab hold of heaven's mysteries. And the characters in many of these stories and the objects in them were well known to the people who were listening to them. There were kings and there were shepherds and there were merchants and there were vineyard owners and there were fathers and there were mustard seeds and there were fig trees and there were oil lamps and there were treasure. And so the audiences who were hearing these stories, certainly for the very first time, they often thought, we know what's coming here. We can identify with this immediately. We're on familiar territory here. But Jesus didn't do predictable. Sure he didn't. And although people might have recognized the plot, they might have recognized some of the characters, Jesus usually injected simple and profound twists that actually shattered people's illusions and forced people to think differently, forced them to rethink. And that's why you could say, and why I've called this little series, Tales of the Unexpected. There was very often a real sting in the tail, as the title of one commentary by Roy Clements goes through the parables. Jesus was the ultimate storyteller. Which is partly why whenever Jesus told stories and wherever Jesus went, huge crowds followed him. Because not only did they want to see what he did, but they wanted to hear his next story. His next parable. And although they are rooted in a specific time and place, first century Palestine, they still speak timeless realities that relate to people of every time. They remain powerfully relevant to us in our 21st century context. But before we get into our story... Let me just highlight three important things about parables. The first is that there has been, and there still is, and I know many of you know this and have probably read lots about this, that there is a major discussion 
regarding the number of points that each parable makes. That some think it's only one. Whereas others try to rip parables apart in an attempt to understand and comment on every single detail. And a more recent view suggests that there is one point per each main character. And all I want to say to you is this. Be aware of that discussion. Secondly, Jesus did say that not everyone would get them. Not everyone would understand his parables. And it was not that Jesus was deliberately trying to confuse anyone. But Jesus recognized, you know, some hearts are just closed to this. And so he says some people will be ever seeing but never believing. Ever hearing but never perceiving. And so some people won't get these stories. And in fact, sometimes Jesus told a parable to a huge crowd and then he only explained it to a select few. Why did Jesus do that? And finally, and possibly most importantly, parables will enlighten us or can enlighten us if we approach them with an open heart and an open mind, if we allow them to challenge us. And so it's with that as a bit of a backdrop in a sense, and it's with that open heart and open mind that I'd like us to just reflect for a a few moments on the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you will know that this parable was in fact part of a trilogy. And what sparked the three stories that Jesus told was a comment that was made by some Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is the context for it. They were disturbed by the fact that Jesus appeared to welcome sinners. Not only welcome sinners, but he appeared to associate with them. He would eat with them. He would party with them. And so in response to their comments, Jesus launches into these three stories. The first two were about a lost sheep and a lost coin. But then Jesus tells the best known of the three. The one we know so well. And there's a danger in that, isn't there? That that we know it so well that we're so familiar with it that we think there's nothing different or new to learn from it. But it's a story which features three key characters. There's the prodigal, there's the older brother, and there's the father. And one of the first things to note about the younger son is just how radical and how unnatural his request was. To ask for a share of the inheritance before your father died would have been considered deeply hurtful, offensive, and it would have been a total contradiction to a respected tradition of the time. This was a request to cut loose from a way of living and a way of thinking and a way of acting that he had been brought up to value. And as a youth worker in a local church, one of the most difficult things... I often had to do was sit with a mum and dad and watch their hearts break because their son or their daughter had chosen to walk away from the values that had been modelled to them by their parents. Values that their parents had tried to instill within them. And many parents not only found that difficult to accept, hard to understand, but it hurt And we can only assume that it must have hurt this dad for his son to treat him in this way. And the father in this story appears to let his son go, despite how hard it must have been. And again, isn't that the reality for so many parents? That you can only hang on to your kids for so long. But there comes a point when you say, yeah, I want to give you your freedom. But in giving them their freedom... You have to face up to the possibility that they may make poor choices. 
they may make unwise decisions that result in serious consequences. But again, time and time again, I've had the experience of watching how hard that is for a parent to let go. They just want to protect them for as long as possible. And yet the son or the daughter is kicking against the traces and wants to go and live life their way. And as Christian parents, there's another dimension to this. Because often the walking away that a young person chooses to do is not just from us as parents, but it's a walking away from God. And it's a choice to turn their backs on a God that they once did seem to worship and serve. And we know that that breaks God's heart even more, and this is hard to get right, even more than it breaks the hearts of a mom and a dad. That there's a father in heaven whose heart breaks whenever one of his children decides to go and live life to their own agenda. But why do people do it? Why do people walk away from the Father? With the Father there is sanctuary. With the Father there is safety. With the Father there is purpose. There is direction. With the Father there is love. There is grace. And yet we all know that so many leave home And why do they do that? And I know that the reasons are varied and the reasons are many because some young people and maybe not so young people think we're missing something. Or some people have been hurt by someone within the family. And others get disillusioned with life at home and they go elsewhere in search of love and purpose and meaning. And yet despite the fact that the world offers and promises so much, it delivers so little. And the attraction in our culture at this time to leave behind the values of home and faith, we've got to accept that they are undeniable. And the world out there does offer love. But it does offer a particular form of love. It's a form of love that says, I will love you if, if you have money, if you are successful, if you are a somebody. Because the world's love will always be conditional. But its appeal is still very real, particularly to our young people. And so like the son, many in our churches, and please God, not many in this church, but many in our churches, and maybe many even within our own families, walk away for a time. And that's painful to watch. And at some stage in in this guy's life, the wheels come off and the money runs out and the conditional love gets exposed and things turn sour And then memory kicks in, memories of sanctuary and memories of safety and memories of love and grace back home with his father. And coupled with that is the dawning realization that he has messed up. And that leads him to a place of confession and repentance. And it leads him to a place of beginning the journey back home. And again, isn't that the cry of our hearts for those who have wandered? And I realize there may be some people here, and and as I speak that you're immediately thinking of people you know who have left home. And we long for them to make that journey back. We long for them to reach a place of confession and repentance, that they wouldn't forget what they had, that they would come to their senses. And as Jesus' audience listens to this story, gripped by this unfolding drama that Jesus is explaining to them, nothing could have prepared them for what Jesus says next. While the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And in that moment, 
As Jesus tells that story, he reveals three divine realities about his heavenly Father. Infinite compassion, unconditional love, everlasting forgiveness. And you can just imagine how his audience processed that. Particularly the tax collectors and the sinners. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Because remember, the Pharisees couldn't get their heads around why Jesus would associate with this sort of a person. And then Jesus tells these stories. And now he gets to this point in the story. And he starts speaking about this infinite compassion and unconditional love and everlasting forgiveness of the Father. And the text collectors and the sinners are listening to this and they can't believe their ears either. That though they were considered unacceptable by the religious elite, the fact was that they could be accepted by the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of life itself. That the God of heaven, the God of heaven would lovingly receive them with open arms. Despite their rebellion, despite their poor choices, if only they would reach a place of recognizing their need of their father and return home. And this was the twist in the story that few expected. And again, we all know this, that the very fact that the father ran to embrace his son would have completely blown their systems. Because fathers in that culture didn't do that. As Aristotle would say, great men never run in public. And this picture of an outrageously compassionate, loving, forgiving father, it was a shock to many, but it was music to the ears of others. And all I really want to say tonight, folks, is this is our God. A God who still has infinite compassion. Unconditional love, everlasting forgiveness. A shepherd who goes looking for his sheep. A lady who lights a lamp, sweeps the house from top to bottom and searches everywhere for what is precious. And a father who watches and waits and runs to embrace wayward children. That is our God. A God of unconditional love. I love these images painted by a guy in London. But it can be so hard to get our heads around that concept. And so what do we do? We keep preparing speeches. The son still thought, I've got to earn my father's love. And so he begins this rehearsed speech about not being worthy to be called a son. And what does the father do? He throws a party. And again, the twists and the turns injected by Jesus force people to rethink their God. And the thing that I take from this is we should never box God. Never allow our hearts to become hardened. But always allow our hearts to be opened and consumed by the amazing grace of God that we have been singing about tonight and we have been thinking about tonight. But there's a final character. There is a younger son. There is a loving father. But the third character in this parable is the one who really intrigues me. And for me, the sense of intrigue and challenge in his reaction, I find particularly unsettling. Because I reckon that in reality, there's probably very few here tonight who will ever go off the rails to the same extent as the younger son. But I do think it's the elder son's story that we need to pay particular attention to. You see, this is a parable, I think, of the lost sons, not just the lost son. 
Because the younger guy, yes, he had sinned in an all too obvious way. He had rebelled without restraint. Morally, he had been swept away by greed and lust. And so often we think of lostness in very visible actions. It's the things that people do that show how lost they really are. The young son, was, his lostness was obvious to everyone, including himself. But it's the older son's lostness that is actually harder to identify. Because he did all the right things. He was obedient, he was hardworking, he was faithful, he was admired, he was respected, he was praised. But beneath the surface, there lurked a heart which had become home to resentment and pride and bitterness and selfishness and possibly worst of all, a judgmental spirit. You see, here was a son who lived his life in service to his father, but it wasn't lived in service to his father out of love. It was lived in service to his father out of a sense of duty. And on the exterior, he did all the right things. He had it all together. But in the inside, he had wandered far. And clearly, that obedience and that duty had become a burden to him. And service had actually become a slavery. And I often wonder how many times this son's situation becomes very personal to us we're still at home but the heart's actually hardening we're quick to pass judgment we're not afraid to condemn someone whenever they appear to go off the rails we find it difficult to forgive others and the prejudices rise to the surface all too often we still serve God but we do so because we feel we have to We're going through all the motions, but there's no joy. There's no intimacy. There's no connection. It's not personal. And then whenever the father, and this really gets us, whenever the father appears to make such a fuss over a returning prodigal, whenever we have stayed at home all our lives, well, that causes all sorts of negative feelings and attitudes to rise up within us. And if that connects with you in any way, Please look at how the father reacts to that son. Because he also, it says, goes out to his older son, not to rebuke him. And again, you would have expected him to do that. But he actually goes out to appeal to him. He says, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. You see, the father's unreserved and unlimited love is offered totally and equally to both his boys. So all I would say as we think about this third character in this unfolding drama is this. That if you ever sense your heart hardening, then please come home. Please return to the Father. And I know there are so many unanswered questions in this parable, and that's just the nature of parables. Like, did the older brother join the party? I've often wondered that. Did he join the party? Did he allow himself to be found by his father? Were the two brothers ever reconciled? Did the older brother ever reach that place of just being glad that his younger brother was back? Was the younger son's relationship with the father different this time round? I don't know, but what I do know with unwavering certainty is that the heart of the father is a heart exploding with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness 
as he longs for his children to keep running into his open arms. And the way I want to finish this service tonight is, is not by singing a song, but it's, about, it's by listening to a song. A song by a guy called Andy Flanagan, who some of you might know, a guy from here originally, now living and working in London. And I remember hearing this song a few years ago at a conference. And it's, it's quite raw at one level, uh, but it was a song that really did connect with me based on the story of the prodigal. So as we finish tonight... I just invite you to listen to this if it works. <laughs> and the words will be in the screen. Stand and pray together. Father, in the silence, I invite people to just think of those who have wandered away from you, who have left home who have chosen for the time being to turn their back on the relationship they once enjoyed. People in our immediate families, people in our wider families, friends we grew up with, friends who were part of the youth group in the church we were part of. And today, They continue to exist in a far-off place. And Father, at times our hearts break for them. But we can't even begin to imagine how much your heart breaks. And how you wait for their return. And you long for them to run back into your open arms. Thank you. For that place where joy and grace abounds. And God, I want to pray for those who maybe find themselves identifying with the older brother, who sometimes struggle whenever those who've gone and lived it up return home, who sometimes think they should get so much more because they've stayed and being faithful and done all they thought they should have done but yet God have lost the joy of knowing what it means to be in relationship with the Father God save us from hard hearts save us from judgmental spirits and if necessary cause us to run back into your open arms and to come and feast at that table with you So God, thank you for all we have sung tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to remember what it cost you to make this all possible. Go with us. In Jesus' name.